Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Securing Bridges podcast. You're about to join Alyssa Miller as she sits down with senior and executive security leaders to share stories of success and failure while working across business teams. It's time to build and secure the bridge to the business. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. All right, hey, welcome aboard everybody. We are back for yet another episode of Securing Bridges. Awesome to have you all out there watching and so thankful for all of you. We've had, we've had a great run so far. Lots of amazing guests here talking about all the different ways that we build and secure the bridges between security-minded folks like us and the businesses, the governments, the, the general public that we deal with every day who don't have that same, maybe, security focus. And this week is no different. I'm, I'm super excited for our guests this week once again. I mean, amazing guests every week. But this week, it's Teresa Payton. So, Teresa... Thanks for joining. Oh, I've been looking forward to this, Alyssa. Yay. Can't wait to have this time together. I, I, I'm super, I, I, I mean it. Like I was really excited when, when you agreed to, to appear on the show because we've interacted a few times, but uh, why don't you tell anybody who doesn't recognize you or maybe doesn't know what you're up to lately, just tell them a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Just um, just a real quick history uh, <laughs> on on what I've been up to. So I um, started my career in the financial services industry, and the way I would describe my amazing time in financial services was I was always able to volunteer when I heard we were going to do new technology that was customer facing. I'd raise my hand and say, "I want to work on that. Is that okay? Can I work on that?" And the banks typically said, sure. Uh, And so when you're on that cutting edge of customer facing technology, you're also on the cutting edge of fraud and crime and all kinds of info security issues. We didn't even call it cyber crime yet um, when I started, you know, just a few years ago. And, uh, And that gave me just sort of a unique perspective because I had to make sure I developed technology that you as a banking customer would want to use So it has to be seamless, has to be elegant, and oh, by the way, secure. So by having both of those responsibilities, I bring, I think, a very unique perspective to cybersecurity because I'm always focused on, well, wait a minute, what is the human doing in this use of technology? What is the human user story? Even if it's machine to machine conversation levels, it's still gonna involve technology and gonna involve the human. Um, Fast forward, got the opportunity to uh, work for President George W. Bush at the White House. Uh, I commuted every week for um, almost two and a half years from Charlotte, North Carolina to Washington, D.C. Just an incredible honor to be able to serve the country during a very tremendous kind of technology innovation change. So I was there 2006 to 2008, Alyssa, and guess what just came out for the first time in 2007? One of these smartphones, iPhones, right? Everybody had Blackberry. So in 2007, sort of in the middle of my tenure, now all of a sudden everybody's got computer processing power truly in their pocket. Um, just an incredible time, an incredible opportunity to really reimagine and modernize the White House for generations to come. 
Uh, as I was leaving the White House, I was uh, pregnant with my third. I've got three wonderful kids. And uh, most of the time, wonderful. You know, we all have our moments. Like, <laughs> yeah, mom, most of the time, too. And <clears throat> as I was leaving, I was looking for the right role. You know, I felt like the country had really invested in me. I was in a lot of different sort of classified briefings. I had a level of awareness that I thought I had the right level of awareness in financial services industry working in a global capacity. But I realized it was almost like I was looking through the, the keyhole of a door into a multi-roomed building. My time in financial services at the White House, I kind of saw it all, all of the capabilities of the adversary. And so I really felt kind of called to start focusing on cybersecurity where it was always around human-centered design. What's the interaction with technology? What's the user story? And how do we make sure that all of that is private, confidential, and secure, and do it in a way that lets the user be the user? So as I'm interviewing for jobs, Alyssa, I'm seven months pregnant, you know, belly's way out here. And, and I'm like, don't worry, I love to work. I like, you know, I'm gonna have the baby and I'm going right back to work. Yeah. I just find companies talking about the human user story. So it was either pure play cybersecurity or is pure play go back and be a CIO. Mm -hmm. My husband encouraged me to start my own company. And I was like, we don't do that in this family. We're military and law enforcement, maybe a little bit of healthcare. And he's like, well, if you don't like it, you can always go back to big corporate. So I went out as a party of one and started Fortalis um, in 2009. And now we're approaching about 40 employees and um, we just really love what we do. We've got a great team and great clients. And then Alyssa, I bore easily. So like my side hobbies besides running, hanging out with my kids, watching them play sports um, is I like to write books and like work on like pro bono things. Um, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is our pro bono operation that uh, we do volunteer work for at Fortalis and me personally. Um, so yeah, that's just a little bit about what I'm up to. That is awesome. There's so much we can talk about here. I will never fit it all into, you know, a 35, 40 minute show, but yeah, I mean, your book is one of the, the key ways I got introduced to you. I mean, this one here, um, you know, and I was, I always laugh because I show people like, okay, this is not a reference book. And yet it is for me because there's so much in here. Um, I, first of all, folks, if you haven't heard me recommend it to you before, check this book out, Manipulated by Teresa. Absolutely phenomenal. But I had a friend send this to me after I spoke at uh, RSA in 2020, our last live one. Um, because I had been doing a lot of research into deepfakes and there was a lot of concern coming up to the 2020 election that deepfakes were going to be a big thing. And in the election, they ended up not really impacting the election all that much. Um, but there were, you know, I highlighted some other concerns, but what I love about this book is exactly what you were just talking about, which is that idea of connecting with the, the human side of things. And how do we, th this book I felt is like, one of those really cool ways to build a bridge to people who don't necessarily understand, like you were saying before, the, the technical capabilities of our adversaries out there and what they're able to do. So can you, I mean, how did you even get started with, with this book? I mean, it, obviously it sounds like probably a lot of what you were exposed to in your time at the White House. Yeah. And Alyssa, one thing I would tell you and anybody else um, is if you have an idea 
for a book or a business, be willing to accept a lot of no's and don't give up. If you believe in the project, keep pushing. So I came up with the idea for this project, the book, um, initially in kind of the 2015, 2016 timeframe. Um, had seen some of our clients actually be victims of deep fake forged documents, deep fake forgeries around text messages, videos, um, you, you know, deep fake videos around pornography and thought this is a problem and it's a problem that doesn't have a solution. And until there's a good solution, you need awareness. And, uh, you know, and that's really kind of how the ecosystem of security works, right? Alessa, it's like, until we can figure out a better technical solution or mitigating controls, you have to focus on awareness. And so I approached my uh, book agent, Joelle, who's just absolutely amazing. And I said, hey, I've got this idea for a book. And she said, wow, that's, uh, you know, I don't think people are thinking about this. And she said, what's the fix? And I said, there's no fix. She goes, nobody wants to buy a book that horrifies them and it's real. It's not fiction, it's real. And there's no fix. And she's like, keep working on it, kid. You know, maybe you'll come up with something. And so I just kept really researching and working on the idea. And then I approached her again and I said, what if each chapter opened up with like a fictional vignette which is really my prediction, but I don't think people can handle my prediction. So I'll create it into a story that'll pull people in like it's a fictional novel, and then I'll tell them what's really going on. And, and she said, okay, let's do a sample chapter. And then she had to shop it around. And I'll tell you, Alyssa, what's interesting is it took us a while to, to get the project where it was accepted by um, the publisher, which is, you know, great uh, that we finally did it, but I would just encourage everybody who's tuning in right now, never give up. Um, so if you've got an idea and you've got a passion, just keep trying. And if a door slams in your face, knock on the door the, again and just say, I'll see you later. I'll be back. Give me the constructive feedback, even if it's a little tough to take and then knock on the next door and just keep telling people, I have an idea. I've got passion. I want to do something and put the sweat equity into it and it will eventually pay off. That's awesome. I mean, and yeah, the, the book honestly is for, for those, you know, out there, I, it, it's really in, it kind of is consuming as you start getting into it because you start to connect things that I think we see around us that don't always really seem to make a lot of sense. And that, that was what I found with the book was, we start actually digging into these how misinformation works and and how you know just that how important that awareness is in combating it was one of the key. I mean that, that's a, I think that's a, a, a key element I've I've captured and used many times over just to because it it extends like you were saying I mean, it, it kind of follows that same model that we do in security. It does, and you know back to kind of. Um... I mean, elections are so important. Elections are critical to maintaining freedoms and protections and a society where we can agree to disagree and still, you know, have a drink together or have lunch together or a tea together. And when the sanctity of elections are in trouble, 
we can't wait for someone to save us. We can't say, well, you know, we, we got to have a politician or we got to have a leader. We have to be the leaders and we have to, we have to save the freedom and sanctity of elections. And so it's really on us to help each other out. And I think one of the saddest things for me to observe is the public discourse around who gets elected and who doesn't and seeing people say, well, I'm not friends with them anymore, or I don't speak to that family member anymore because they fell prey to a misinformation, disinformation, manipulation campaign. That life is too short. Life is too short to allow ourselves to be separated from each other. We were already separated from each other because of a pandemic. And we let the bad guys win when we allow manipulation campaigns to shut us off from one another. Yeah. And that's, I mean, <laughs> God, we could have like a, a whole volume of shows on, on that alone. I mean, just the, the trouble that, that that's led us down, but uh, we're going to keep it a little more focused on cybersecurity just because, Boy, that's also like you were just saying. That's one of those hotbed topics that, like, if we dug into it, we're going to end up like, yeah, people just it it it's frustrating to see that. But it is important to be aware of the misinformation because it does, as you said, it's it's not just elections, right? And I mean, you mentioned that you've had clients who you've seen who've fallen prey to, uh, you know, their own elements. We think about phishing campaigns, and and that's just another element. Uh, using a lot of the same techniques of, you know, misinformation and manipulation that we, we see elsewhere. So, so as you look at it from that Fortalist perspective now, how has that kind of changed your approach or, you know, where, where has that steered you since, you know, coming out of the White House and now looking at the world from more of the private sector side? Yeah, no, it, you know, it's interesting. I always say to people, especially people who are changing careers or, you know, just coming into cybersecurity is definitely be a student of your profession. If you choose cybersecurity, you'll never get bored. It'll never grow old and your job will change every day. Um, and you know, one of the things that I love about the work is that I'm a technologist at heart. And so my thought process is always around how can technology reimagine business processes, our lives, experiences, and then how do I help sort of design and create safety and security nets that are just part of the overall fabric of the experience so that the user is safe and secure, but we're still reimagining and transforming our lives for the better. Um, and so what I love about, you know, kind of where things are right now and the advances in technology, I, just like a quick example. Um, so for example, if we had um, devices connecting to cellular towers or networks that we knew to be unsafe, I had to build all that proprietary infrastructure myself when I was at the White House. So I had to constantly, who's talking to whom, what are they doing? You know, the whole, there wasn't an enterprise device management at the level that we needed it to operate at. So we'd use what we could that was commercially available. And then we had to kind of build our own stuff um, as a safeguard to be able to say, where is this device? If I'm not sure I have to brick it. <laughs> and, and now the technology is so much more advanced 
that you can say that's well that's a, just a core piece of design elements and foundation what do we focus on next you know so if you think about sort of the kill chain you know where do we focus next to make sure that the human is secure the data is secure and that the operations are resilient um, i actually think Alyssa, that we are on the brink of something really cool where we could potentially have self-defending self-healing systems where if we start to think about our enterprise architecture at sort of this micro segmentation level, maybe it's like within a user story, within that technology application, it's almost down to like a tokenized transaction. What can we do that when things don't behave the way they're supposed to behave, that we can technology wise flip a kill switch, maybe have some human curation, looking at the automation and saying, yeah, this doesn't make sense or no, it actually does make sense, let it go. And then how do we have almost like a self-healing, uh, self-resilient type of technology? And we are so close to that. And I'm really looking forward to sort of taking all of the conversations we've had on zero trust architecture, enterprise architecture, thinking differently about authentication versus authorization versus access controls and kind of being able to go to this next level of design. I mean, I think for me, that's going to be where end users, regardless of their technology savvy and whether they love technology or can't stand technology, will be able to really embrace and say, I feel secure and it's so easy. Like we are so close to that. I, first of all, please, God, I hope you're right, um, because it would certainly it would push us far away along. Right. And I, and I'm not. I don't think anybody's going to sit here and say, okay, well, well, then we become totally secure and the world is all great and wonderful. We know how this works, right? We, we make advances, our adversaries make advances, but this does feel like that, that kind of progression you mentioned zero trust and going to that sort of, you know, this feels like that would, that brings that model even further along, matures it further and, and extends its capability to a point that it really starts to have some really powerful impact. So, I mean, it, when I look at like even just how you describe Fortalis on LinkedIn, you, one of the things I know you mentioned there is you talk about that that creative problem solving, which is kind of thinking about things a different way. I mean, I know for me, you know, coming from the hacker world where I grew up, that was that's why we <laughs> that's how we exist, right? I mean, that's that was that was the thing. Like, how can I look at things differently and make them, you know, either do different things that they weren't really intended to or whatever? And I feel like you know, what, what you're describing now kind of speaks to that that same sort of thing. Oh, it really does. And, you know, it's funny you say that about, because, um, you know, we always talk about how do we study the adversary so we can behave like the adversary to then be the good guys, <laughs> right? And so they, I mean, what's interesting is, is if you think about kind of the old school approach to cybersecurity, um, and, it, and it came out necessarily out of, hey, we're plugging in legacy systems that didn't even know the internet existed, right? It's sort of like if somebody still has VHS tapes and Blu-ray versus streaming, right? And it's like these older technologies didn't know that we would be doing streaming one day. So like when you start to plug them together, it's clunky. And that's kind of necessarily some of the old school ways we thought about cybersecurity was because we were plugging and pushing together systems that never knew the internet and transactions at the speed of light were really going to be happening. And so, or faster than the speed of light in many instances. So 
to me, kind of this evolution around uh, the conversation and really starting with how does the adversary think? Um, and what's interesting to me, like if you look at strong passwords, I don't know about you, Alyssa, I've never had somebody not in security say, oh my gosh, did you create strong passwords? Because I love them. The longer, the better, the more <laughs> they expire. Please make it that it can't be the last 15 versions of passwords that I used. No, no. And, and so that's an example where we had to come up with a solution in security. It's not elegant. We were kind of forced into a, a design issue. And now we're thinking differently with multi-factor authentication. But to your point, if we don't continue to study and think like the adversary and maybe even think of things creatively before they do, then we have a situation like we have now with SIM swapping attacks. So now that we've improved where we are on the kill chain, the criminals have said, wow, this is really hard. Now, Alyssa, what they didn't do is say, you know what, I should be a good person now and bake pies for my neighbor and go visit them. Shocking. I don't do that. They didn't just decide to be good people now. I'm right. I'm, no, so instead, <laughs> instead, they're like, oh, really? You're going to make the phone be the place that multi-factor authentication happens? And oh, by the way, you're going to store all your cryptocurrency on there? Well, that's great. Why don't I just do SIM swapping attacks? Let me see if I can do that. And so for those of you who aren't as familiar with how that works, there's a couple of different ways that someone can get access and basically convince a phone company that you've bought a new phone and all you wanna do is just swap everything over to the new phone. And when you do that, you essentially can do a digital walk-in on somebody's cellular life. And so that is happening. I actually, I've got the statistics somewhere, um, Alyssa, cause I wrote it down cause I wanted to get it right. Ah, here I got it. SIM swaps in the United States, cases reported only to the FBI. So these are only the victims who reported it. In 2019, there was roughly 12 million US dollars that was actually stolen as a result of SIM swapping. So that could be what, committing wire transfer fraud on behalf of a business, committing wire transfer fraud for individuals. It could be stealing cryptocurrency. In 2021, so 12 million, go two years, $68 million in losses due to SIM swapping. And again, this is just the people who report it. How about the ones who did it? So these are the types of creative ideas the adversary is coming up with. And what I love about the work that you do, Alyssa, and the work that people on my team who do um, red teaming is they're constantly having to stay, you know, try to stay a step ahead of what the adversary may dream up next. Yeah. I mean, well, that it's the whole concept behind, like you said, the red teaming, the, the kind of offensive security thing. As we look at this, it's the, the capabilities are constantly shifting. And I know we, we like to put different labels on, you know, different elements of it, but it all comes back to the same thing. How can, you know, the, if you look at the base of it, right, it hasn't changed. Like, how can I steal money? How can I commit, you know, how can I, you know, execute acts of warfare? How can I, all of this, we, we, we title it all sorts of different things. It's the same thing. It's just, it's always followed technology. And this is where we're at now. It follows the technology we're using today. So I know, um, you know, and that's one of the things I find neat about what you're doing right now too, is you've kind of been able to span in, in the, in the theme of the show, you know, that, that, that sort of you, your, your viewpoint that you had first in financials, then in the white house as part of, you know, the, 
the public sector and now again back in the private sector, you're able to bring both of those perspectives to companies who don't fit into either of those categories. And so I'm, I, I love the way that, that that seems to really shape kind of a unique approach that you have to this. And I mean, even looking at like some of your past content is, you know, one time you're talking about cyber warfare, the next time it's, you know, should, should CISOs be fired or criminal charges or something like that? I can't remember exactly which now, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, so is that kind of, am I, am I, am I seeing this right? I mean, is that, that's sort of where you, you see your role today? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, when I look at what we do as a company, our focus is obviously we love to be on the proactive side first. So, you know, what is the business trying to do? How are they reimagining themselves? Um, you know, where are they headed next? How are they using technology? And then where proactively can we help? You've got regulatory compliance frameworks, like the least unsexy part of what we do, but very necessary and sort of the foundational elements, right? They don't stop bad things from happening that you have a checklist and you passed, but it's a good place to start and a rally point. And then you you kind of go sort of the next level of maturity. So I like, I like to sort of meet our clients where they are and then like help them through their journey. And so then some clients are a lot further along. They're already doing red teaming. So it's like, well, how do we supplement what you guys are doing and do a little more? Um, some have never done threat hunting before. How do we coach a mentor and help you um, with doing threat hunting? And then obviously in their hour of need, we're there for them from an incident response standpoint. The other thing that we do uh, is that I've got a business intelligence unit and that business intelligence unit is looking at the footprint of our client companies their CEOs, their C-suites, and operating as almost like a digital guardian because we have seen way too many times where consumer account compromise has led to business account compromise. Everything from business email compromise, wire transfer fraud, getting into the sysadmin account at work for the remote access platform. Oftentimes it started somewhere in consumer account compromise. And so if we can protect the C-suite sort of with this digital guardian and this business intelligence, then we inform our red teams, we inform our threat hunting, and we inform the organization at a level that a pure play cybersecurity approach doesn't always get where you need to get to. So with that consumer compromise planning, is it more just like things like they're reusing same passwords in different locations, or is it more that you see the the attackers like actually leveraging that compromised account to gain credibility in in that business compromise? Where do you how does that fall together then? Well, actually, Alyssa, you're spot on there. It's kind of an all of the above. So there's okay. different scenarios, but I'll give you just a quick story. So this is a CEO of a very large regional healthcare platform. Um, he is an amazing CEO and uh, just kind of a rising star in the industry. And we move them to, so here's like a creative, this is free advice for everybody. Um, one of the things when you outthink and outmaneuver cyber criminals is you wanna do something they don't expect. Most of them expect CEO and CFO of communications CEO's in a hurry and tells people to move money and people do it. And you'll typically do it on email accounts that are probably tied to your domain name. That's typically how most operations work. 
So a design idea that we've been working with our clients on, and I'm just telling everybody for free because it's super easy, is for like $9 a year, you get a domain name that has nothing to do with your company's public facing domain name. You set up credentials that, uh, that you don't use on LinkedIn or social media or anything like that. You then sit down with your bankers, you come up with a new protocol, a new template, and then you have not just voice authorization, but also some kind of code name. Like it could be Batman, Robin, it could be whatever. And then we train people on how to kind of use these new protocols. And then we say, if your regular public facing email receives a wire transfer request, it's no good. It's clearly fraud. And if it's not fraud, then someone has to be retrained. So do not fall prey because that's going to be social engineering. Fast forward, the CEO, brand new CEO at this organization, CFO, they had just gone through this changeover to this process two weeks earlier. CFO says, boss, I got your request for the wire transfer. Why aren't you using the new protocols that Fortalist trained us on? I'm going to go ahead and authorize this, but I just wanted to ask why you're using the old protocol. And the CEO said, I didn't send you a wire transfer request. Fast forward. So we were asked to do an investigation. When he was going through the interview process, his personal email account had been compromised for multiple years. And when the cyber criminals figured out who they had, they just stuck with him and studied him. Because the CFO said, you even asked how my son was and you made a joke about the weekend game. And the CEO was freaked out. He was like, oh my gosh, this has to be an inside job. It wasn't. Criminals were inside his personal email account for years, studying him, watching him, and waiting for their million dollar payout. And if they had not moved to that $9 protocol, <laughs> buying a new domain name and the training, they might've actually wired that money out the door. So that's kind of an example of like, you know, how to sort of outthink and outmaneuver. It's just sort of these creative things that just, is that hackable? Of course it is, but yeah. you just throw them off their game. No, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, it, honestly, and of course, I'm sure I'm not the only one sitting here just realizing the the the, the depths. I, I won't even call it sophistication. It's not even that sophisticated, but the the patience, I guess, is what's really startling. Like we always kind of think of you know hackers being really focused on targets of opportunity. Even when we think about spear phishing campaigns, it's still kind of like you know, well, we're going to send this to this target pool and whatever. But but what you've just highlighted is this idea that, okay, you know, attackers are actually, many of them are, are very patient. And when there's a, a big fish or, you know, we think about the whale fishing and, you know, that whaling, I've heard it called, whatever, you know, they will sit and they, they do understand a lot of times, I think, more than we give them credit for because we're all used to seeing the horrible Nigerian prince emails and stuff like that, which still come too. But um, so, I mean, that's – so I know you said that you, obviously you use this in what you do at Fortalist, and you also mentioned some of the nonprofit work you do. Um, can you dive into a little bit more, maybe some of the ways that you're bringing some of the cybersecurity expertise into maybe non-traditional spaces? I know there's a few stories that you've got in that space as well. Sure. So for example, the work we do with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, because we have this business intelligence unit, the work we do, you know, looking at sort of digital footprints of humans, having to track things down, Sometimes somebody has a stalker, 
Um, so for example, we have people that are in healthcare who had anti-vaxxers trying to show up on their yard and harass their children. And, you know, to me, it's like, you can have a sense or a feeling about that, but you know, you shouldn't be going after people's kids or showing up at their yard. So all of those different things that we use for commercial enterprises and cybersecurity cases and work, we can apply to finding missing children. And so we've actually conducted training exercises for National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. We've often done pro bono work on missing kids' cases. And it's just taking the mindset of, you know, if you think about it at the heart of everybody who's in the cybersecurity ecosystem, we want to solve complex problems. If we didn't, we wouldn't be here. Um, we have an insatiable desire to like make things better. Uh, we, critical thinking skills. Oftentimes we're charting on, you know, navigable waters. There's no roadmap. And all of those can be applied to other different problem sets, one of which is missing kids, uh, one of which is tracking down who is involved in sort of these missing kids things. Um, I was on the, it was a game show, so to speak, but, you know, I was on the TV show Hunted, which showed, you know, sort of using investigative skills to track down people. And now I have the honor, I can't reveal everything about it, but I have the honor of working on a documentary where myself and um, Lenny DePaul is retired US Marshals, great friend of mine. We love to work together on all kinds of uh, client projects and things like that. We're gonna be applying our investigative skills in cybersecurity to try and solve cold case murders and bring justice for the murder victim and for their living family members and loved ones. Um, so there's a, when, when you know, for, for those of you who may be listening in right now and maybe you're feeling a little burned out and that would be so understandable, be looking for a way, is there a way you can take your gifts and your skills and maybe apply it a little differently to a problem set? I have to tell you, I get more out of what I give when I do this pro bono work, whether, and it's hard work, um, you know, cause there's a lot of loss there, but knowing that you can maybe elevate and find somebody and get them back to their family or get them back to a safer place than the place that they're in. Like that to me can be very energizing. And so if you're looking for something to nourish you because maybe the job has just been really, really hard the last couple of years, find an outlet where maybe your gifts and skills are needed and you didn't even think about it. That is awesome. First of all, I'm, I'm kind of like just astounded because I used to watch Lenny used to be on a, a different uh, mm -hmm. like reality show and I actually met him. God, where was it? I don't even remember. He wouldn't remember me, but God, I mean, so that, I'm just like, wow, that, that's pretty cool by itself. But the work you're doing is incredible. And I, it, it honestly tracks with what I would expect from someone like him and and someone like you, because you spoke to sort of that, I think there's like that idealism that we have, you know, in, in for us in cybersecurity, you know, where, you know, I think even, again, I mentioned my hacker roots before, you know, we were a bunch of punks who wanted, you know, we didn't really, we like to pretend like we didn't care, right? Like we, we just wanted to mess things up and whatever, but the reality was very different. When you really looked at what we were about, at least everyone that I hung out with, it was, it was a very different story. And I think, you know, being able to take that and 
what you said speaks to, I think, uh, sort of a hidden power of cybersecurity professionals, and that is our desire to to want to do more and to do ultimately good for the world. Absolutely. And, and you know, Alyssa, I saw there was a quick question that came in around um, a point around the, you know, what is the problem you are trying to solve? And I love that Frank asked that question because um, just doing cybersecurity work to fill out a checklist, you know, okay, we got a new thing going in production. What's the compliance checklist? Okay, now we're going to do this thing. That's not very nourishing and energizing, candidly. And you may not actually solve the problem. So yeah, yay you, you got the checklist done and it's necessary. But at the same time, what problem are you trying to solve? So Frank, thanks for um, actually bringing that up because I think it's something that we all are stretched so thin. There's not enough of us in the field and it's growing. Um, You know, Alyssa McKenzie uh, said they did a study on transformation efforts during these last two plus years. And it's they estimated that organizations accelerated their technology transfer roadmaps by an average of seven years. That's incredible. And so who is at sort of the center of making sure that that's secure? That would be cybersecurity team. So I think, Frank, you brought up such a great point, which is what problem are we trying to solve? So this is kind of a loose segue, but it does segue into something else I kind of want to examine with you a little bit because you bring it up in the book. And that's the, you know, the, where technology companies have kind of failed us, right? Um, you know, and now I know obviously I was a little more specific to some of the misinformation topics you're talking about in the book. But in general, I mean, you, you kind of highlighted something that's going to be a real challenge for us. And I guess I'm curious, where do you see that accountability ultimately, where is it now versus where you think it should be in terms of we're creating all this really cool tech and we're accelerating and going and, you know, and, and our transformations, our digital transformations, our cloud transformations, all the, the various explosions of technology that we've seen in particular the last couple of years now that, as you point out, do we even have enough people to secure it? Who is ultimately, who should be held accountable for that? Well, it, I hate to say that it's a team sport because if we don't have the right framework, then it's a scrum, <laughs> right? And so it, what we really need, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, in rugby, it's perfectly acceptable, but you can't run the whole game as a scrum, right? So we truly need, national and international frameworks around social ethics and responsibility of big tech, social media, devices. Um, and so if you're hardware, if you're software, if you're firmware, you know, just like we have as a mostly as the world has said, you know, elevators need to be safe no matter where you are. Electricity needs to be safe no matter, you know, so there, there's like these international guidelines like ISO, which we all agree to and say, look, buildings have to be up to code. Airplanes need to be up to code. And when they're not, we all talk about it and, and basically hold those who build the airplane accountable. Um, and so as it relates to where we're headed with technology, 
we're lacking that international framework that says, okay, what are you building? How is it going to be used? Who's going to be using it? Okay, here's your code of ethics and here's how you're going to be held accountable to this. And until we do that, the unwritten, unspoken oftentimes rule is it's on you and me. And the challenge is you and I are in this industry. We're in this ecosystem. We know it's on you and me. Most people say to me, gosh, I paid a lot for my smartphone. Now I got to I got to be worried about all these things. Why? It's brand new. Why would it be insecure when it's brand new technology? And to them, that makes a ton of sense. So we've got a lot of work to do. Um, and we have to figure out how do we create a dynamic framework that can evolve quicker than, you know, look at what we're looking at on the Hill. Getting anything passed on the Hill is really challenging in America, much less international frameworks. But we have to have the will and the grit and the determination to actually sit down and say, individual right to privacy, um, we should have a right to know everything that's being tracked, what gets passed along, we should be allowed to monetize it. I mean, there's a lot that can be done and the technology would support it. But until that framework is in place, the de facto responsibility ends up resting on the user's shoulders. That's not where it belongs. We play a role we need to be responsible, just like you want to drive a car, you got to get a driver's license, which is some basic level of competency, maybe based on what I saw on the roads yesterday, not much, but <laughs> some basic level of competency has to be proven. Um, so how do we get that point across to big tech, social media, the phone makers, and it's important. So Frank actually just asked a question is exactly the last question I was going to ask because we're getting down to time. But I really want to hit on this is maybe some of our responsibility actually to educate the consumer because, you know, what I noticed, you know, and, and people are like, okay, Alyssa, you're a broken record on this. Shut up already. But, you know, one of the key examples that I use is the, the air tags from Apple. Right. And now Apple's not the only one who made these. And yes, I know, you know, other makers make them too, and they have the same problems, but Apple's by, you know, the, by far the most accessible and they take advantage of their ecosystem to add particular functionality to those that was predictably abusable and they fail to account for it. And even still now aren't doing any, very much at all to defend anybody beyond those who are members of their ecosystem. And so something you said in there kind of, it, it clicked for me because you said about the elevator thing and the regulations around elevators and you talked about airplanes too. It's like, you know, I see so many people are like, okay, well, yeah, those are, you know, it, it, but it's cool tech. Like we forgive them because it's really cool tech. Social media is doing lots of really awful things to people in terms of privacy, but we accept it because it's really cool and ubiquitous to our lives. We wouldn't accept that if it was an elevator that from time to time, an attacker could, you know, take control of it and crash it, right? Or if they could do that with an airplane. I mean, I wish I had my copy of the Far Aim here right now, the FAA regulations. I mean, that book is literally this thick mm -hmm. of all the regulations around, you know, uh, aeronautical and, and, you know, aviation stuff. So is that maybe part of our responsibility is to really not just go after the tech companies, but actually start educating consumers Kind of like you do in your book. See, this is it's all coming full circle now. But I mean, how much do you feel like maybe that's incumbent on us as security practitioners 
maybe even more so than creating the frameworks, it's getting people just to even understand that it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, education awareness is really important. Um, I think the traditional vetted news media has done a good job doing their reporting, trying to make people aware. The cybersecurity industry is doing better. We can do better. And I'll just a quick example. I still remember um, I was trying to explain why certain technologies were not going to be allowed on an international trip at the White House. And I was trying to explain it because it was classified and these people didn't have this, this right level of clearance. And they said, I really appreciate you. I just used analogies. So I just use like everyday analogies of like house and car and things like that. And she said, I really appreciate that you explained it that way to me. She said, because sometimes I feel like when I ask a question, people in technology and security just talk louder and faster at me that I'm going to explain that I'm going to suddenly understand it better because they got louder and faster. And I was like, we do do that. And I know I probably do it sometimes. And so what I would say is instead of speaking louder and faster, because you don't think your mom, your grandma, your aunties, your coworker get it, find a way to be relatable. And I think the more that we can make what's really at stake here relatable um, one more quick uh, thing. So there's this large um, insurance company. And one of the things they do every year when they kick off their um, cybersecurity awareness month is the first day is dedicated to protecting your elderly parents from internet predators and protecting your children from internet dangers. And they spend the whole first day on that. They don't talk about the company at all. They don't talk about multi-factor authentication and active directory. They focus on what's going on and then they move into the corporate topics on day two. They make it relatable. Building the bridge between cybersecurity and the rest of our lives. I love it. It is such a perfect way to wrap up the show. My God, we couldn't have planned that any better. Well done. <laughs> uh, but like I said, we do actually have to get going. This is by far the longest episode I've, I've done yet. Um, but the conversation has been amazing. And I know, as always, we could probably go on for hours. But um, thank you, Teresa, so much. It has been an absolute honor to have you on the show today. Um, thank you to everybody who's tuned in. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, as a reminder, as always, this episode will be converted to podcast. It'll be available immediately after the episode, after we're done here um, in video format. The podcast will be available a couple days. Check it out on all your favorite podcast platforms. We're on pretty much all of them. So uh, definitely find this episode, find past episodes, check it out. And the last thing, a reminder next week, I'll have an announcement coming out shortly and we'll get it out on ITSP channels as well. Next week, we will be changing the time slightly. It looks like we're going to be 3 p.m. Pacific time, which is two hours later than our normal show. Uh, but we will be broadcasting Securing Bridges live from RSA. And as I dropped last week, super excited, we are going to have Jen Easterly on as our guest. So I really hope you come back and check it out. Um, if you're at RSA, come find me and uh, we'd love to meet up with you if you're a fan of the show. So until then, take care of yourselves and we'll see you next time on Securing Bridges. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Securing Bridges podcast with Alyssa Miller. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues.
If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.